1: Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Now, in today's episode, we're going to do something you should probably never be allowed to do, and that is having a bit of a nose through some women's diaries. Secret, private, intimate diaries.
2: The question of whether these women wanted others to hear them is the big one. And in a way, everyone has to answer it themselves. Some, apparently not. Others, very clearly, yes. I mean, even Anne Frank, who had no reason at the time to know, thank God, why her diary would be so famous, wrote that she'd like to think of becoming an author of other people reading it.
1: That was Sarah Gristwood there. She is a British author and journalist and has just released her new book, Secret Voices, A Year of Women's Diaries. It is a captivating collection of diary entries looking back over four centuries to discover how women's experiences of men and children, sex and shopping, work in the natural world has changed down the years and of course how it hasn't. The book spans from January 1st through to December 31st and you'll find entries from some remarkable women there including Virginia Woolf, Oprah Winfrey, Anne Frank, Louisa May Alcott and even Queen Victoria. It's a fascinating insight into how women were thinking and feeling throughout history. We get glimpses into their love affairs, their sorrows and their reactions to historical events. Sarah tells me about the inspiration behind the collection, the common themes that pop up throughout like anger, frustration, lust, love, lots of sex and what she has learned about the variety and richness of the female experience. So here she is, Sarah Gristwood. Sarah, this is a big, beautiful looking book, the kind that comes with a yellow ribbon down to mark your page and assumes you're going to look into it every so often and relax a bit and get Mm -hmm. some very interesting little things to Mm. talk about and then go away from it again. Is that how you imagined this was going to be?
2: Well... Perish the thought that people should read it in the smallest room. But I can actually imagine (laughs) a lot of people are saying to me that they're keeping it on their desk or wherever and plan to read that day on the day. So, yes, on the one hand, I like to think it is totally dip-in-and-outable. On the other, of course, I do hope that if you treat it differently, you know, if you read it solidly, does, could add up to something quite coherent on this, to me, very important subject.
1: Yes, indeed. Tell me, Sarah, what inspired you to compile this collection?
2: Well, the fact that there wasn't one out there already, I guess, which I could hardly believe. It's one of those ideas you think, well, everyone must have been doing that. Oh, guess what? They weren't. A million years ago, in my 20s, I actually did write a book about, about what women write about in their diaries. So I didn't come to this subject cold, and I've been keeping an eye on it ever since. But so much more is available now, because that we're going back right to pre-internet days. So really, all you could use was what was on sale in the bookshops, or there in the library, in your own country. Now it's a much more global and a much more inclusive business.
1: Indeed, that struck me, Sarah, and you make that point indeed in your foreword, that Mm. it's kind of limited. The older ones are limited to those women who were probably quite affluent and were literate, which obviously excluded an awful lot of women in society. So did that make it more difficult for you?
2: Yes, in a way. I mean, there was a hunt on my part to really to try and find, to hunt up the voices of those who were not our middle, professional, upper middle class aristocrats, which traditionally had often meant white women. But I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of people out there now, I think, academics and so on, looking for a more diverse range of voices, and some of them have survived. Not nearly as many as the, you know, the lady this or that, the the wives or sisters or daughters of famous men, the professional writers. But there are other voices out there: the farmer's wife, the maid servant, the pioneer woman.
1: And of course, there was always this thing called journaling. Sarah, mm. is, is that the same thing which we talk about a, a lot about now? We don't really call I it know. diary anymore; we call it journaling. I know.
2: Is that the same thing? Oh, good question. Big question. Yes, I guess. Whether there's any difference between a diary and a journal, it's it's a bit of a moot point. Some people describe a journal as being more reflective, more about thoughts and analysing feelings, whereas a diary could be as basic as went to Sainsbury's in the morning, spent the afternoon watching TV. And some diaries are though yeah. not the ones I most quote uh, but in the sense that journaling as we you know we now we now use it as a verb is something we see as a bit of a self help tool, then yes, I think it has been there for a very long time, right from the start in fact, some of the earliest diaries were written for o- or in the English language, were written for almost for religious purposes, a kind of way of keeping a spiritual assessment of yourself. That's why there's quite a high percentage of Quaker diaries, because uh, the Quakers were at one, you know, women were encouraged to keep a diary, to keep an eye on their spiritual progress. So the idea of journaling as something to help you, whether it's to let out the bad feelings or or encourage the good has been around for centuries.
1: Mm. Because I, was, I was fascinated, Sarah, to see, for example, Elizabeth Smart, mm. 1934, which is, what, 90 years ago now, mm-hmm. said this diary does sound vain, yes, but that is what it is mm. for, to get it out of my system, which is quite a modern phrase, isn't it?
2: Yes, indeed it is. And... That self-analysis element goes back a lot further than that. The earliest diary in the book is Lady Margaret Hoby writing at the very end of the 16th century. And she's just, you know, saying what happened that day that she dressed the sores of some poor people and you know, her prayers, but also saying, I was bad today, but I felt that... that, 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 that She doesn't obviously doesn't use the term. My head wasn't in the right place, but that's what she's saying effectively: that her religious practice hadn't been as heartfelt as she'd like it to be. Goodness. Well,
1: that was a, would occur to very many mm. people now, Sarah, too, <laughs> as a motive. But you mentioned P.D. James, who thought that the Dear yes. Diary mode could be a defence against loneliness and mm. with no fear of treachery or, mm. or criticism. Oprah Winfrey gave up using journals as 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 therapy in her forties and instead used them to express gratitude. Mm. Now, I read all this in your foreword. Would that make for a lot of boring diaries, though, if everybody just decided to write out of gratitude? That, because obviously, it would. I think it would rule out a lot of the more revelatory well, stuff.
2: Yes and no. Indeed and in truth, I'd have been grateful for a few more gratitude diaries because my slight problem was that. As as the diarists themselves discuss, an awful lot of them write, pick up the pen at moments when they 're feeling down, like Elizabeth Smart says they write when yeah. they 're feeling lonely, distressed, baffled when they're at, when they 're having a good time, they just go out and have it so I'm quite grateful for the people like, oh, the American writer May Sarton, who writes about the huge pleasure of the early spring flowers in the garden and that kind of thing.
1: Yes, or I think Cynthia Asquith, Lady Asquith, who said she couldn't stop looking at herself in the mirror. She was so delighted with how she looked that day.
2: <laughs> so, yes, I know. that, yes. There's lots of good stuff. From, I loved it. Lots yes. of good stuff. She, she really Lady liked C- how yeah. she was
1: looking that day. You do say, Sarah, that if you were to pick out the single strongest emotions voiced mm-hmm. through all the entries, it would be anger, frustration. Yes. Which is something that women can only do secretly. So that's the feeling you got from all these diaries. You, you know, what we are reading are, are small ec- extracts. But you were reading all of this for a long time, I presume. You have a hundred diaries, over a hundred, I think. And you we were finding a lot of anger, frustration, demanding husbands, brutish husbands, in fact. Tell us a bit about that.
2: Yes, I was. Uh, I hasten to say that that's not the only tone in the book, the anthology. It would be an extremely depressing read, if it were. And very often, Mm. the anger or frustration is cloaked in humour. Beatrix Potter, we know her as the writer of The Little Tales, Peter Rabbit et al., but before that... I mean, she was in her 30s when she began to publish those. Before that, she had this kind of long pupildom as a Victorian young lady at home. And she wrote a bit in this diary written in code, NB, about her actual despair. But sometimes she wrote humorously of the frustration of how she'd taken her now acknowledged as very important drawings of fungi and so on, to Kew Gardens, and and, and the the director just wouldn't take her seriously. So she writes with humour. She says, oh, this is from memory, but it's very frustrating for a shy person to be treated as if they were conceited, especially when the shy person happens to be right. And... (laughs) other women too about oh you know disasters that have happened to them but they kind of give a kind of wry shrug or they just recount like Nella last the little frustrations of yes life with her husband and how the second world war going out to work in a canteen and also the process of diary writing has helped her to realize it doesn't have to be that way So I think there is the anger and the frustration, but there's also a kind of resolution that comes from it because Beatrix Potter did go on to write the little tales. Nella Lars did stop having her husband's supper on the table every evening the minute he got in. And I guess the two were both important battles for the women in their way.
1: One of the women just staying on that theme of awful husbands, if I may, Sarah, mm. is Ellen Wheaton, a schoolmistress yes. back in, I think she wrote this in 1818. Mm-hmm. My husband wants me to either remain home penniless and as an underling to his daughter or to be kept by anyone who will take me. And there is an element of of fierceness, yet despair. I mean, she walks 12, 14 miles to see yes. that daughter yes. in, in her school. and. It's, it's extraordinary how these little small extracts done, you know, for each day of the year over what? Over centuries, but in her case, presumably over, over a lifetime, how they do tell her story. Mm. Um, how did you find Ellen Wheaton and, and why did her diary come to your attention or how?
2: Well, it's one that I'd been familiar with for a long time since I wrote that book in my 20s. And by the way, I do feel that in fairness, and who knows, descendants may still be living, we should say that Nella Last's husband was, unlike Ellen Wheaton's, a loving man. It's merely that they'd been living by the rules of the earlier part of the 20th century, and they both learnt to change. But Ellen Wheaton's, yes, it's a very shocking story. Uh, I found the physical book residing on the shelves of the London Library, which, of course, has a great many volumes of memoirs, diaries, from the the 19th and the early 20th century. But I think that one does stand out as an epitome of awfulness, what her husband Hmm. did and continued to do to her. As you say, she was literally Um, thrown onto the street, she said, without any money. And, of course, one thing that really struck me in Ellen Wheaton's diary, she writes, she wrote very specifically about how much harder it was for a mistreated woman than a mistreated man. She said, a man who's been maltreated has, you know, many options – A woman has none. She's physically weaker than the man. The law is not her friend. She says very few men will defend her if she's a wife who's quarrelled with her husband. And in her day, of course, as she writes, there were no women in a position of power. No woman barrister who'd, you know, take up the cudgels in her defence.
1: Yes, because she's rescued by men, by her brother, I think, and by various male people, but who always bring her back and try to effect this reconciliation. But apart from that, I think are desperately unhelpful. On the upside, Sarah, there's Mm. actually... A lot of love and and desire and mm. sex in this volume. Yes, um, I'm you know even with Queen Victoria, it's clothed in lovely language, but there is lust coming out of her entries totally. that I think is fantastic. Tell us a bit about that. We think we we invented sex here I in know. the 1960s. I know, but clearly there was a lot of lot of it going there, on um, <laughs> there and very enthusiastic.
2: Absolutely was, and as you say, even Queen Victoria in diaries that were edited by her daughter, Princess Beatrice. So Princess Beatrice burnt anything she thought was too racy. But Queen Victoria writes the morning after, after their wedding, of Albert put her stockings on for her, a great delight for me, and the pleasure of going in to watch him shave. But others write even more frankly, Anne Lister who, of course, we know as TV's Gentleman Jack, wrote again Mm. a coded diary, the beginning of the 19th century, about all her lesbian love affairs. In the middle of the 20th century, the young Joan Wyndham wrote with extraordinary frankness on a range of sexual topics, everything from losing her virginity to her first orgasm.
1: Yes, uh, she was very young at the time, Sarah. She was she was what eighteen or nineteen. Yes, and there is a you know there is a lot of sex, and there is one one entry I think which you'd be very familiar with from the tenth of May nineteen forty. This is after the war broke out, and it's very interesting to look at the date lines from that point of view because you realise what else is going on in mm. the background. I mean, there is history going on all around Joan. uh, But she goes to the theatre, I think, when war is declared and her parents are appalled. But then she talks about this this unfortunate who obviously really fancies her hugely. You read out the extract. After tea, we had a long talk about masturbation, she says.
2: yes. Well, after tea, we had a long talk about masturbation. Leonard approves of it and gave me the reasons why. He says everybody masturbates. It's perfectly normal and a pleasurable way of getting satisfaction when other means are impossible. Just as it was getting interesting, and I was going to ask him how it was done, another artist, Conchy rushed in. That's conscientious projector. Rushed in waving a newspaper. <laughs> They've invaded Holland and Belgium, he panted. So there it is. We looked at one another. The war had really started. Things seemed to be moving so fast. And yes, Joan was 18 at that point. Believe me, the themes go on. On the one hand, the war. On the other, the sex. There's another uh, entry specifically on masturbation. I probably won't quote here for fear of causing offence, unless you're going out after the watershed. But but (laughs) the two themes perhaps go side side by side. That's one thing that interested me. Um... With Joan Wyndham, of course, in her day, there was a feeling and a number of young men invoked it that they could all be killed tomorrow. So let's live today that perhaps old rules didn't seem quite so sensible any longer. But you've got someone like Virginia Woolf uh, at the end of World War One writing that three things had happened today. There was talk of peace, She and Leonard had made a first visit to a particular club and she'd broken her tortoiseshell spectacles. So of the three, the first, the talk of peace, is, of course, the most important, but nonetheless, she made it pretty clear it was the spectacles that were most on her mind.
1: Yes. The other character that fascinated me, Sarah, was Alma Mahler. Mm, mm. who was married to Gustav, obviously. Yes. And my goodness, she was quite the gore, as they would have said back in the day.
2: Well, Uh, she was. Tell us a bit about her. She is a very extraordinary woman. And believe me, when you read the diaries of some of the wives or mistresses of famous men, you don't half get another light on their character. I mean, if there's one single lesson to take away from this book, it's, never marry a Russian writer, just don't do it, or indeed <laughs> um, a composer. <laughs> but, <Yes>. No, Alma <laughs> does indeed write with quite extraordinary frankness of yeah. her own sexual adventures. There was no, even though she, at the time she was writing more than a century ago we think of Victorian young ladies as being prim and proper and not even looking at piano legs unclothed. Here she was, very frankly, discussing not only her her experiments, she writes about, you know, how I felt his manhood, and so this is before her marriage, uh, writing about her own desires in a way that, We'd think we were being quite adventurous if we did today. Clearly, sex was not invented in 1963, as who was it? Philip Larkin, I think, said. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) On the other hand, Sarah, a woman like Vera Britton, who is a a, Mm. a sort of almost an icon in Mm. First World War history and the terrible sense of foreboding as she writes about her great love, Julie signing up and going off to the Mm. front. But he was so disciplined towards her that he didn't even kiss her at the railway station. I
2: know. I know. Isn't it tragic? I mean, you do do feel, oh, go for it, reading the diaries. But no yes, indeed yes. she's talking about how she admires his his purity and how surely perhaps they could have been forgiven for you know for heavens, a peck on the cheek, you know. And it's very it's interesting how the one thing can go side by side with the other. I guess yes, that's one lesson so. that experiences in past decades or centuries
1: Another thing that fast another theme, I suppose, that fascinated me, Sarah, was were women in politics, mm. such as Barbara Castle and Una King. Very different women. But Barbara Castle sort of, I think, suffered from imposter syndrome, which I was very intrigued to discover. She was a Labour cabinet minister. Mm. Do you want to talk about her? She was tipped to be the first woman prime minister. Yes. And she said, I don't think I'm clever enough. Only I know the depth of my limitations. Um, And she secretly cheered when Margaret Thatcher rose to the top of the leaderboard when she was... She was fascinating and wrote quite honestly about this.
2: Yes, she was and she did. And I suspect that as women go, Barbara Castle was not unusually self-doubtful or diffident. It's just that I'm not quite sure how many male politicians we'd find writing only i know the depths of my inadequacy i rather suspect there'd be more about trying to cover it up but no barbara castle was great and she wrote of course we you know we're talking 60s and so on um about uh, or se- we're talking the latter part of the 20th century she wrote about things like having to rush away to get the house ready for Christmas and how no-one understands the difficulties of a woman cabinet minister and about how one yes. cabinet meeting on something like December the 23rd and all the men waffling on about things that really weren't that urgent. And she she was saying that she had to get home and prepare Christmas for 40. Men have no sense of priorities. So I loved Barbara Carson. <laughs>
1: I've always loved her as well, Sarah. Now I know more. <laughs> Talk to me about Una King, Sarah, who also a Labour politician. I think the second black woman to be elected to Westminster. But her long hours really did, possibly, we, we never know the other side of the story, but in this case, we don't, I think, but destroyed her marriage, basically. And she talks very poignantly about her husband just ending up disliking her.
2: Well, she does, And as you say, she does write with extraordinary frankness about an issue that we still have going on today. I think we still have, don't we? Women in Parliament urging that the hours are, the hours make it effect very difficult to maintain any kind of family life and relationship. No, I thought Una King's Mm. diary was just wonderful. And... She does write perhaps more frankly and unguardedly than Barbara Castle did a few decades before. I think she decided very much to actually give her experience as a woman as well as a politician. And they're just fascinating reading. I think almost the single extract I liked best was the one on Millennium Night, you know, the night before the Millennium struck and of course, she was one of the party invited out to the dome. But they all got stuck in this huge queue. You know, there were no tubes, <laughs> there were no drinks, and so she actually wound up celebrating the millennium, trying frantically, you know, to get so much as a glass of wine.
1: Yes, that's that's a great description. It is. Isn't um, it? On the other hand, I'm I'm sorry to say, Sarah, that the extract that jumped out at me was where she's writing about how the marriage is breaking down and she says it's a terrible thing when the person you love says they don't like you anymore. Yes. Not even they don't love you, but they don't like you. Yes. So that's why I think I'm close to a mental breakdown. And you think about the, the secret lives of those women. Was that diary meant to, meant to be public? Oh, yes, it's public. Yeah, she wrote it for publication. Yes, I think she did, actually.
2: Uh, I think she wanted to record her experience as, as you say... Uh, only the second black woman elected to Parliament. And uh, as someone also who was going through long experience of IVF not working, of questions of adoption, she did want it to be... No, no, there's there's no question. that After all, she's very much alive and kicking, created Baroness King, a seat in the House of Lords. Yeah. There's no way it would be out there if she hadn't willed it to be. And
1: all credit to her, yes. I think. In that sense, Sarah, do you think most of these women wrote their diaries with an eye to being read in the future? Because you you, you refer to one of them, I think, as, as writing almost in code. Was that Alma Mahler? I can't remember.
2: No, two diarists at least, but two I, I use, wrote their diaries literally in code. And they were Anne Lister writing about her lesbian relationships in the early 19th century, and Beatrix Potter, writing as a Victorian young lady. And she also wrote in, literally, in in a code, cracked only some years after her death. But the question of whether these women wanted others to hear them Is the big one. And in a way, everyone has to answer it themselves. Some, apparently not. Others, very clearly, yes. I mean, even Anne Frank, who had no reason at the time to know, thank God, why her diary would be so famous, wrote that she'd like to think of becoming an author of other people reading it. So the question then for me was, this book is called Secret Voices. Well, some of the diaries were very secret. Others, the the author knew the question of publication. I mean, Queen Victoria must have known her diaries would have been of public interest. But nonetheless, I pretty much stand by that secret because... Even the women who knew they might be published later, after their death, used the diary, the immediate privacy of the diary, secrecy of the diary form, very often to voice the feelings that they couldn't voice publicly in their day. Now, whether they Mm. were like Anne Frank and Fanny Burney, well, Anne Frank addressed her diary to the ideal friend, to Kitty, she felt she didn't have, Fanny Burney, what, 200 years before, wrote of how she was addressing her diary to a certain Miss Nobody because there was nobody to whom she could speak completely freely. So I do think these were voices that in their day were very often private, secret forbidden almost, transgressive, even if the diarists hoped that later the world might change and they could be heard more clearly.
1: One of the entries uh, is from Florence Nightingale, famously the nurse. Her Crimean work was particularly remembered. And she wrote in 1846, I can do without marriage or intellect or social intercourse... Or any of the things people sigh after. My mind is absorbed with the idea of the sufferings of man. It besets me behind and before. What kind of a person does she come across as in the when you read more of that, Sarah?
2: Well, her diaries are very interesting. And the nature of them changed completely. She, like Beatrix Potter, had a long pupillage as a victorian young lady at home her family fought her desire to to nurse it wasn't felt to be as you know suitable it wasn't felt suitable for a young lady to have a career at the time and it threw her just as it did beatrix potter into complete despair the single the i remember her writing i think it was I think it was at the very end of nineteen forty. My present life is suicide. I lie down, I'm not sure if it's even in the book she wrote so you know so much on this subject. I lie down every night hoping I won't have to get up. Later, when she'd found her vocation in life, she had gone to the Crimea, she'd become a statistician as well as a nurse, you know, a real mover on of medicine. She mm. used her diary completely differently. There, was, there wasn't an, out, an outpouring of feelings. There was sort of, in fact, whether you even call it a diary is, is, is questionable. It was all papers and notes about what she had to do and things. So, again, it, it, the diary reveals, you might say, the secret side of Florence Nightingale the side we don't remember the way we do The Lady with the Lamp.
1: Yes, indeed. And that's what actually makes the book generally fascinating. We're getting that other side of, you know, if you just knew a little bit about Una King, you'd never have guessed what was going on in her mind. But she had such a rich, rich, interesting life at the same time. Sarah, could you have compiled a book called The Secret Voices of Men? (laughs) Good question. I could most certainly have
2: compiled an anthology of male diarists. It wouldn't be my personal interest. Indeed, the whole, the reason that I was writing this one was in the other anthologies out there about men and women. Uh, the women do not get anything like 50% of a showing. But mm. would they have been secret voices? I'm inclined to think not. That's my personal opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm sure, of course, there have been men who've wished to express feelings that would also have seemed transgressive in their day, whether it was emotional, sexual, political. But I do not, my own belief is that no, there would not be the same impulse, the same sense of a need for privacy.
1: Yes, or the same need of secrecy, I presume. Yes, exactly. Effort. Yeah, I still think my one of my favourite entries, <laughs> which is a sign of my giddiness, Sarah, uh, is sorry. Lady Cynthia Asquith in 1917. I just found the quote. Actually, she says, "Today I could really pass a great deal of time very <laughs> happily just looking at myself in the glass." I love that. Also, Louisa May Alcott, um, author of Little Women, yes, who wrote April 1887 fine wrote letters to town at 11 shopping dress etc felt well oil bath slept well pay miss j chop and there are some of the mundane things that you know it sounds like rather a, a lovely life in the in the meantime she was writing you know and you find that with several of the women writers that they their lives seemed very mundane even when they were writing Middlemarch, in one case. Oh, uh, indeed, yes, one call, of my favourite as well. Where, yeah,
2: one of my favourite entries. I think is George Eliot saying that sh- she's terribly sh- afraid she'll never make anything of Middlemarch, and of course we now think of it as you know one of the ultimate novels of all time. But no, Louisa May olcott interested me. She's another whose diary changes hugely. What you just quoted was one of the later entries. When they were, they did tend to be like that. At other points in her life, she wrote um, quite extensively, and she wrote some of the experiences that absolutely were the material for Little Women. I mean, she wrote about her own marmy, as she called her, marmy, and then there's, then there's yeah. marmy in Little Women. She wrote about the death of her own sister, Beth. And again, I'm sure we all remember the death of Beth from Little Women. But the real Beth, too. Olcott noted how um, Beth complained as she was getting weaker and weaker that the needle, the sewing needle, got too heavy And that detail is there in Little Women. So it's fascinating.
1: And desperately sad, actually. I mean, the the sadness still comes across the the centuries. Another one you wrote about, just to illustrate the variety in the book, Sarah, is Anne Morrow Lindbergh, whose whose son... What year? That would have been in the... In the 50s, 60s? No, no, it was early. Charles Lindbergh. Before the war. Uh, um, because indeed,
2: it was it was the crime on which, which Agatha Christie used as the, the crime behind Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, no, as you say, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, in her own right a flyer, an aviatrix, but she was married to the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh. And... Again, famously, tragically, their young child was uh, in, I think it was 1932, their toddler was kidnapped from their home and found dead. And Anne Morrow Lindbergh was a long-term diarist, but she continues writing that very summer about how a body's been found, how desperately glad she was, She spoilt her baby, her toddler, little boy, her her last weekend with him about how I can I can hardly even say this without my voice cracking about how she hoped he died quickly, that he wasn't missing her, that he wasn't suffering. And you just think, what a thing to go through and what a thing to be writing and reading about.
1: Yes. And it's hard to imagine what a sensation it was back then. I mean, it really did preoccupy the whole world for for quite some time, didn't it? People are still actually talking about Charles Lindbergh, not so much about about Anne's, which makes it which makes it interesting. Sarah, overall, what did you take from this exercise? I mean, obviously, we know women have made the most tremendous progress in terms of liberating ourselves and progress and all the rest. But is it as radical as we think it is?
2: Mm, Good question. In some ways, yes, of course, domestic abuse still happens. Heaven knows, but Ellen Wheaton would, at least in the Western world, have more sources of support today. But I think the thing I really took away was a sense of familiarity and therefore of support. It was of women in the past writing about issues that are still very much part of our dialogue today and that we think of as modern. 200 years ago, roughly, you've got Elizabeth Fry, the Quaker and prison reformer, Writing about how she worried that her husband life with her husband and children was distracting her from her her vocation her work her career if you like, and writing about the difficulty in bonding with a newborn baby well the term mm. postnatal depression wasn't in currency then her the labor she'd just undergone would one hopes be less grueling now, but to find a woman from that long ago writing so freely about you know feelings that that a woman might be expressing in the pages of the newspapers now was it yeah. was surprising, it was welcome, and it does I think give you a feeling that our foremothers in a sense were there for us in a way we don't altogether yes. realize no
1: um and and finally i I want to sort of salute nella last who mm. spotted a, <laughs> spotted something important in terms of style and the context and where it was bringing women in nineteen forty three Sarah where she ponders the thing of women beginning to wear trousers.
2: Yes, totally. I think she says, doesn't she, that uh, at last she understands why women are wearing trousers, that it's a sign of liberation, that they can do more and uh, be freer. And I think that was part of her own journey towards liberation, that at last she, she got it. She was in her fifties by then. I don't know whether she moved into trousers she She laughed when her son Cliff got her this extraordinary thing called a a siren suit you know for use for yes. use in the night time raids <laughs> uh but yes, I know there are some lovely things like that. Decades earlier, we had Beatrix Potter saying that she'd like to proclaim the age of knickerbockers
1: so Gosh, yes, that was quite early on. We 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 thought Knickerbockers were something out of the seventies, didn't we? At least they had a resurrection in the nineteen seventies. After all that, Sarah, what what would you like people to take away from it? I mean, you probably don't intend anyone to sit down and read it in one gulp and they couldn't. It's a big book, and it actually deserves more reflection than that. But what would you like people to take away from it?
2: I think just the variety and richness of women's experience because we can wind up thinking of women in the past in slightly kind of black and white or you know slightly not highly colored terms but guess Mm -hmm. what they were having extraordinary adventures as well as agonies claiming their own rights and identities having fun having furies just the whole range of experience and how openly they're prepared to tell you about them.
1: One last question that occurs to me, Sarah, do you keep a diary yourself? (laughs) No, (laughs) I keep.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I should lie, really, shouldn't I? I do at various points, usually points of stress or particular experiences like a trip to the Galapagos or something, Uh, write down what I guess is more like journal notes, but I do not keep a diary, a daily diary. I guess that would lead us on to a whole other question we haven't got time for, which is whether whether there are different sorts of diary-keeping today, because what I do do is take photographs pretty much every day on my mobile phone, reflecting what I've been doing or even thinking. That was an option Florence Nightingale didn't have. Is the diary changing? No, it wasn't. But we'd be here for another hour talking about that one.
1: (laughs) Well, as you point out uh, with insight, yes, we have different ways of keeping diaries now, but I think really the endless fascination of, of this book is that they are people's really intimate thoughts that really were never to go on Instagram or Twitter Mm. or wherever. They wouldn't have seen the light of day without people being canny enough to go in and enduring the labour of going through them because Mm. I'm sure they weren't all fascinating. But Sarah, thank you for doing that for us. And it's a beautiful book, physically and otherwise. And uh, good luck with it. Thank you very much. That was Sarah Gristwood there and the book is Secret Voices A Year of Women's Diaries. If you enjoy this episode and the podcast in general please leave us a review or subscribe as it really makes a difference to us. I'm Kathy Sheridan and this podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Rosine Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. You can reach us on social at ITWomensPodcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com That's it from me. Mind yourselves. I'll talk to you next time. And don't keep a diary just in case it ends up on the Women's Podcast.
0: Hold up. What was that?